Well, it, it was September 23rd, 2012. I found myself sitting on this little bench in front of a small McDonald's in this train station, vast cavernous train station in Uppsala, Sweden. It had been a long day. I had flown from RDU to New York, from New York to Stockholm, and there I was sitting waiting uh, for my daughter. I hadn't seen her in person in over a year. And it had been a long day. Again, travel, flights. I had to roam around uh, Stockholm a little bit before she was going to get in. I found myself sitting there. Expectation. I couldn't wait to see her. And as she came up, I'll cry now. As she came up far at the far end and started walking towards me, what a sight. And I give her a great hug. Now contrast that with a few years earlier, many years earlier, I was in Philadelphia. I was also not at a train station this time, but an airport. I was at an airport waiting this time, not for my daughter, but waiting for Bill Bright. He was the president and founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, my boss's 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 boss. I was this young new staff, uh, the speaker liaison there, I was waiting for him. This time it wasn't excitement and expectation. This was a little anticipation and a little nervousness. You know, was I dressed right? I vacuumed my car. I washed my car. Made sure I had the right things. I had his itinerary. The expectation was a little different with Dr. Bright than with my daughter. We've been looking at the book of John, 1 John. And here in this passage, we're going to take a look at John's expectation. He was with Jesus, and he's saying in this section, he's coming back. I'm expecting him. When he appears, what will life look like? What needs to be true of us? And I'll I'll be honest, I don't know about you, but I don't think often about the Lord's return. That's not, unfortunately, right now on the forefront of my mind, that God's coming back and what that means for me and for us. But it's important to John. It was important to Jesus. It's throughout Scripture, over and over again, he will appear. He will come back. The Lord's coming. One of my favorite books of the Bible is 1 Thessalonians. At the end of each chapter in 1 Thess, at the end... There's always an illusion or a comment about Christ coming back again. James Boyce writes this. In the New Testament, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. It's mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. It is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books with the exception of Galatians, which deals with a particular doctrinal problem and the very short books such as 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. This perspective is a powerful perspective. A friend of mine did his PhD research on what causes people to go into full-time vocational ministry, what causes students to join staff or do ministry. The number one motivation is having an eternal perspective, looking at life not in my 70 or 80 years, but looking at life in light of eternity, in light of the Lord's return. Number one. And so here, John is going to talk about the Lord coming back. Now, but he's not talking about specific details. It's not predictions. It's not apocalyptic writing. What John is concerned about as the pastor is our preparation and the results of what's true for us. 
So this morning what I want to look at is one, one practice for us, and then there are five contrasts I see in this passage. Let me read it. You guys can see if you, you can f- see that the practice and the contrast as I read God's word to us this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 3, 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let me pray. Lord, would you use my feeble, frail preparation? Would you use the power of your word, Spirit of God? Would you apply your word to our hearts this morning that we might bring you more glory and might await your coming? Let me pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What's the practice? It's abide in Christ. He starts right at the beginning. My little children, abide in him. What does it mean to abide? I mean, to abide is to rest. It's to, to endure, to, to continue with, to stay with. Abiding here is not just an activity, it's a lifestyle, right? To abide in him is this continuing intimate fellowship with the Lord. And I wonder if John is thinking back to John 15, as Scott read. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Who abides in me bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. John is thinking, what does it mean to abide in Christ? There's a passive sense that we abide. See, a a branch, uh, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches who abides in me. A, A branch draws its life force, its nutrients, its water, its minerals. Everything comes from the branch into, uh, from the vine into the branch. And so, too, as we abide, we draw our life source. We draw our sustenance from the Lord. In a similar passage, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, right? The stuff of life. Bread then and even still now is necessary for life. And Jesus uses that picture as well. As we abide in him, we're drawing upon him. We're resting in him. There's a passive sense in which we rest in Jesus. Although at the same time, he commands us to abide in him to bear fruit, to to keep his commands, to love one another. That's what it looks like. I think John also, as we've seen in 1 John, uh, is confessing our sins. What does it mean to abide, to be be sensitive and aware when we do sin, even as Tony was praying, the, the desperate need we have for the Lord's forgiveness, and we know he does forgive us. Charles Spurgeon talks about it this way. Abiding in Jesus, living in Jesus is not a passive thing, it is an active thing. We must give ourselves mentally and spiritually to living in Jesus. 
we abide in him, not by a physical law, as a mass of iron abides on the earth, but a mental and spiritual law by which the greatness of divine love and goodness holds us fast to the Lord Jesus. Yet we are not only called to abide in him, but we also know that he abides in us. It's a two-way relationship. You are to take care that you abide in Christ as much as if it depends on yourself. And yet you can look at the promise of the covenant and see that the real reason for your abiding in Christ lies in the operation of his unchanging love and grace. How do we abide in him? Through trust, through obedience, through living in him, through living and being at home with him, through fellowship, through open and honest communication with Jesus, keeping a clean conscience, trying to make sure we're not unclean before him. So consider, if you will, ponder for yourselves for a moment, how, how do you best abide? How do you find yourself abiding in Christ? Is it that nice cup of coffee early in the morning with your Bible as you spend quiet before the kids are up? Is it being outside someplace there in prayer? Is it in worship or with song? What, what is good for you to abide? How, how is it best that you abide? And then contrary, though, what keeps you from abiding? I don't know what it is for you. I, I know some of the things for me that kind of breaks that abiding. What, what is it that keeps me from hanging on tight, resting in him? What distracts me and then I get caught up in my own stuff of life versus abiding? When Jenny and I got together after that great long hug in that train station, we spent the next week together. And we just abided together. Long meals, casual conversations, deep conversations, ministering together, hanging out with friends, fishing. Of course, we actually did do some fishing, for those of you who know me. We just abided together. We want to abide in Christ. Well, that's the practice. So what are the contrasts? What things does John mention? Therefore, in light of abiding, what's true of us? Or what are the contrasts we see? The first we see there in verse 28. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him. Not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The first contrast is we can have confidence, not shame. We can have confidence, not shame. When I was waiting for Jenny, I wasn't worried about her being too late or me being too late. I wasn't worried about how I was dressed. I didn't worry about having jet lag or bedhead. Or I, I just couldn't wait to see her. As opposed to when I was waiting for Dr. Bright. You know, nah, I wasn't too sure how, how that was going to go. I was this young kid and here's this godly man. It makes me think of that great hymn, And Can It Be? The last verse, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the throne. We can boldly approach the throne. We can confidently come before God because... Even as we anticipate his coming, we are his ch children. 
Now, that abiding and that confidence doesn't mean living however I want. It doesn't mean that I can do whatever I want to. Uh, One commentator said, some Christians will be ashamed. They will shrink before him and his presence. All believers are accepted, but there is a difference between being accepted and being acceptable. A disobedient child who goes out and gets dirty is accepted when he comes into his home, but he will not be treated as though his actions were acceptable. I think of Jesus, uh, again, telling the, the parable of the talents. Remember, the, he, the landowner has five servants, uh, three servants, and he gives one five talents, another two talents, and a third one talent. He says, do with these what you will as I am gone, care for them. And the one with five makes five more, and the one with two makes two more. But the, the one with one was fearful, maybe shrunk back in shame and knew that the, the landowner was an exacting man and specific, so he just hid the talent and, and had it back for him. I, th- I think what John is saying is we can be like the first two servants. We can take what God has given and, and use who he has given us to grow him and not shrink back and not worry. Uh, this week, actually, I was with a, a buddy of mine, a, a serial entrepreneur here in, in Raleigh, we were actually talking about this parable. And he said, I wish there was a fourth servant. I wish there was the fourth servant, the one he also gave a, a two talents to. And this guy said, Lord, I, I had your two talents. I went out and I invested them and I built a business. And it did great. But just before you got here, it collapsed and we lost everything. Because he thinks Jesus would say to him, the same as he said to the first two, well done, good and faithful servant. We can be confident at the Lord's appearing because we are abiding in him. How do you come to the Lord? As you come for your quiet times, as you come after sin, as you come maybe after a few days or a few weeks of not really talking to him much, you can come with confidence and not shame. Because he loves you and he calls you his own. So that's the first contrast. Second contrast we see in the next verse. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who has right, practiced righteousness has been born of him. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What a great truth. John saying is, It's a mark of new birth. It's a mark of a relationship with Jesus that you practice righteousness. He's saying it's true of every believer that we will do right behavior. There are no exceptions. Now, he's not talking about sinlessness. He's not talking about perfection. But he is saying that we have the habitual practice of doing what is right, of being in the direction of our life towards God. Because we are children of God. We behave rightly. I'm, I'll confess, I'm a fan of the old TV show MASH. I mean, how many people remember MASH? Yes. Okay, there are some really redeeming parts to that show. There's not some not as redeeming parts, okay? But if you remember, there was Charles Emerson Winchester III, right? The pompous Boston surgeon. And I don't remember what he and B.J. Honeycutt were talking about. I really don't. But I vividly remember them talking about what was going on and 
Charles saying, I am a honeycut Winchester. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Winchester honeycut. I am a Winchester. See, my name, my lineage, my character, that is who I am. That is why I act this way. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a child of God. I live righteously. You live righteously because you are a child of God. He loves you and he calls you to live for him. The tense of this verb is one that denotes this habit of life, this prevailing principle of one's life. It's not a single action, but a succession of acts which make up life. So what does that righteousness look like? Again, I wonder if the apostle, uh, I wonder if John is thinking back to his time with Jesus. Thinking about what was Jesus' righteousness life look like? What did Jesus' life look like? It, it, it looked more than just, you know, looking like uh, morality. There's so much more than that. It was the way he loved others, the way he loved non-believers, the way he loved his friends, the way he loved his enemies, the way he cared for the unlovable, the way he reached out to the outcast and the poor and the needy. Think about it. Even today, the people in the church, but even the people outside the church often look at Jesus with, they revere him. He lived a certain life, right? He was a good person because of the way he lived, the way he conducted himself, the way he cared for people. As I think about what does it like, look like for me to live righteously, maybe with you, would, you, would you join me in flipping through the Gospels in your mind, flipping through those stories that you learned when maybe if you were in church as a little child, you heard in Sunday school. What did Jesus look like? That's righteousness. That's how we should be living. And we do because, again, I'm a Christian, honeycut. I'm a Christian. It's a great encouragement, isn't it? What an encouragement that I can live righteously. But it's also a check. I have to be honest. If, if I don't see in myself fruits of righteousness, if I'm not seeing the fruit of the Spirit lived out in my life, if I'm not seeing my life moving Godward, rather moving heavenward, then it might be a check for me. Do I have this new birth? A am I really a Christian? Because John says, if I'm a Christian, my life will be characterized by righteousness. Third contrast. Verse 3, chapter 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The contrast is we are children of God, and some would say not children of the devil. We are children of God, and the world does not know us. I love the Phillips translation. Listen to this translation of this verse. <clears throat> Consider the incredible love that God has shown us in allowing us to be called children of God. 
And that is not just what we are called, but what we are. Our heredity on the Godward side is no mere figure of speech, which explains why the world will no more recognize us than it recognizes Christ. The first thing I see in this verse is just that wonderful thing of God's amazing love. God loves us. God loves you. He loves me. In light of our brokenness, in light of our sin, in light of my creatureliness, so opposite of his holiness and his character that he would choose to say, I love you. That's enough of a sermon right there. That's amazing. But he contrasts us as believers to the world. Wearsby writes this. He, uh, <clears throat> uh, God reminds us that the children of God is not simply a high-sounding name that we bear. It's a reality. We are God's children. And we do not expect the world to understand this thrilling relationship because it does not even understand God. Only a person who knows God through Christ can fully appreciate what it means to be called a child of God. The world just doesn't get it. They don't see it. This love relationship that we can have a, a relationship that God loves us and we can love God is a foreign concept, I think, to those who aren't in the faith, who don't believe. Maybe you're visiting and telling, yeah, Don, you're right, I don't quite get it. I hear this love relationship, I hear this guy, but I just don't see how it works. And it's often true, I think, because we have a misunderstanding and the world has a misunderstanding of what this relationship is all about. A friend of mine, Tim Downs, tells a story. When he was a young man, his family, his dad loved Irish setters. So the, the family bought his dad this new, this Irish setter, beautiful dog, gorgeous coat. But if you know anything about Irish setters, they're not the smartest dogs. They're a little dumb. So they had this dog. They loved to care for the dog. They opened the dog, opened the door. The, the dog would run and run and run and run and never come back. It would just run away. At the end of the day, they'd get a call. Hello, Mr. Downs. Uh, we have your dumb dog here. And they'd return the dog and bring it back. And the next day, let the dog out and the dog would run again. Eventually, they, they actually had to give the dog away. The dog just didn't want... They loved the dog. They wanted to care for the dog. They wanted to be with the dog. But they... The dog just kept going. God says it's the same with us. He loves us. He wants a relationship with us. He cares for us. But oftentimes we just run. And we don't want to go towards God. Before we're in Christ, that's our heart. That's our bent. And so he says, that's what you want. That's what I'll give you. Not only separation from me now, but separation from me for eternity. That's the gospel. But, but the world says to get to know God, it, the grid they look through is often this grid of being a good person. Having more good outweigh my bad, right? Not doing too much wrong. And so as we say, you know, God loves me. In fact, I'm 100% sure I'm going to heaven. As they see through the gear, what they hear you saying is, oh, you're better than me. Oh, your good is way better than any of your bad. They can't see it. They don't understand this love relationship. And so John says the world will be looked different. 
the world will not know you. Jesus said it even more poignant, pointedly. He said, the world will hate you because it hated me. The contrast is, as we abide in Christ, we'll be experienced this love relationship, children of God. So you shouldn't be surprised, though, when the world doesn't accept you. Don't be surprised when your behavior and your lifestyle looks different from those around you, right? Because we're not of the world. And again, if I, if I can say it gently, if you notice that you actually fit in really well with the world, if you're not a little different from them, if you don't stand out, again, you just might question. Or at least I encourage you to work on and to do the hard work we'll talk about soon about abiding in Christ. So three contrasts. We can have confidence before God. We can live righteous. We do live righteous lives. And we're children of God, not of the world. Fourthly, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children. And now what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We're not who we will be yet, but we will be one day. The contrast of who we are now versus who we will be is stark. Now, if I can take a quick tangent, he starts with the word beloved. And again, probably this is John talking to the churches, you're my beloved. The commentators would also say it's what God views towards you, right? You're beloved. For me, about a year ago, I was reading a book, and I don't really remember exactly how the author framed it, but used this word, beloved. Don, you're beloved. And there was something just different. I, I know God loves me. I've known that for a long, long time now. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I get it. But this word, beloved, there is a sensitivity. There's a softness. There is an intimacy. So I'll be honest, every day when I journal and have my quiet time, the days that I do, I start with writing at the beginning, I'm beloved. As a reminder of this love relationship and a reminder that I'm going to talk with my friend. I actually talked with my father who loves me. So John says, beloved, when we will see him, we will be like him. John uses the word see three times in this book. In uh, chapter 1, he uses the word see. Remember, those things which we have seen, these things which we have heard, it's, it was a physical eyewitness account. In, in chapter 3, he talks about those who have not yet seen, and it's eyes of faith, not seeing uh, Jesus for who he is. It's uh, eyes of faith. But here, he's saying those who see the heavenly glory of God. Seeing Jesus when he appears in all his glory. We will see him and we will be changed as well. We will become like him. Three years ago, our, uh, we did a remodel in our kitchen. I got to do all the demolition, like those TV shows. I, ripped all, I got to rip all the cabinets out, all the, all the countertops out, moved all the appliances out. Uh, then we had someone professional come in and they repainted all the walls, had to fix all the drywall halls and all the spots, kind of put in cabinets, new countertops. 
during that time, off in the dining room, is we had, Annette had put together a, a microwave and a little hot plate. That's all we had. For, for weeks, that's how we cooked dinner. A microwave and a hot plate. And we kept kind of looking through the, the, the sheets that are kind of protecting us and the dust from the, going, it's, it's getting there. It's getting better. They're going to be done soon. This is going to be great. Yes, cook on the microwave again. We can't wait. It'll soon be there. J.D. Brannon says this about a similar project that he did. Hope and completion. Those two words are even more meaningful to Christians. Our lives have always, always seemed to be in a state of remodeling. We are often frustrated by our inability to complete, to be complete, complete in our likeness to Christ. We sin, we fail, we forget to honor the Lord in everything. But just as our family keeps remodeling, painting, and papering, because we know the finished product will be worth it, so also we as believers can keep going because we have the sure hope that someday we will be like the Lord Jesus. That in every Christian's hope is completion. C.S. Lewis talked about it this way, in his weight of glory. Stay with me. It's Lewis. It's beautiful. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror or corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, in some degree, helping, we are helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another all our friendships, all our loves, all our play, our politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life to ours is like the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, Marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. We will be changed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. What a great encouragement. The contrast of how you and I live today in the struggles and the fears and the temptations and the trials and the physical difficulties and the emotional and spiritual difficulties in a moment when he appears we will be like Christ. Not for our glory, but for his glory. 
to bring him honor. What a great contrast. It's my favorite. Lastly, the last contrast in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let me read that in a couple more translations. Everyone is a confusing passage. The contrast is that we can hope and so we will live pure lives. The NASB says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. New Living says, And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. And Philip says, Everyone who has a heart who has at heart a hope like that keeps himself pure, for he knows how pure Christ is. Again, the reality, much like our righteousness, the reality is that we will be pure. As we hope in him, as we have this hope, the expectation he's coming back, that we will keep ourselves pure. That we can walk with him. Now there's a balance between the we have to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. And yet he has cleansed us fully, perfectly, 100%. And we have to balance our work of purification and purifying ourselves and following after him, abiding in him and living with the work is done. And we've seen him change our lives. How many, been, how many of you have been watching the ACC basketball tournament? Only a few, wow. More people watch MASH than the ACC. Then. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of colors represented in this room. I understand that. A lot of sad red and black and white people. A lot of sad different blue colors people. Really happy. Uh, crimson and orange. Burnt orange and maroon. From the UVA guy, a tip of the hat to Virginia Tech. It was rough. But when you watch all those games, do you notice in the last two minutes of the game, the game they, they start playing a little differently? Sometimes it's dart fouling. Sometimes it's delaying. The last couple minutes, things are different. I, I think that's what John's saying. You know what? Christ is coming back. When he appears, you have this hope within you. Live your life differently. We live our lives not the way we live our life as if he wasn't coming back, but we live our lives because we're anticipating his appearing. We're anticipating what he's going to do. We're anticipating the contrast that he will work in our lives. My actions are different. If if my hope for purity is in myself, in the law, in good morals, and building nice good walls in my life, if it's just discipline in my habits, to be honest, those are probably going to fail. But if my hope is in the Lord, because he is pure, and I'm abiding in him, he is working out that purity in me, and the power of his Holy Spirit, then I will work hard, and he will work in me, to make me pure, to make me like him. And I know you might be thinking, if you're like me, but Don, it's, it's hard to let go of my sin. 
I like some of my sins. If we're honest, we like them because we enjoy them, at least for the moment. But often we don't consider the long-term consequences. So we need a motivation for, for purity. And John says our motivation is that we are God's beloved children. Our motivation is that he loves us and he's coming. And when he appears, we will see him face to face. Can I take you back to that train station one last time? There I am waiting for my daughter to come. Again, I, I didn't care how I looked. I didn't care how she looked. I just wanted to be with her. Give her that hug. See her for the first time in over a year and spend time with her. John says, Jesus is coming back. When he appears and he will appear, abide in him. Live in him. Rest in him. Might we have when he appears mindsets? Might we have when he comes mindsets so that we would bring him honor and glory? Let me pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the truths of your word. We confess we do wrestle with our own unrighteousness, our own impurity, but we are grateful that we can abide in you and you in us. Apart from you, we can do nothing, but as we abide in you, we will bear fruits of righteousness in our character, in our behavior, in our attitudes, in our actions. Lord, all this for your glory. All this so more might know you. We pray we would abide in you. In Christ's name. Amen.